The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. I just wonder, have you ever thought about what Jesus was like as a young child? What Jesus was like as a young boy? The sinless one, the sinless one. How his siblings reacted to him. What he was like as a child. Have you thought about that? I'm sure you have. I'm sure you've as you've read through the Bible, you've wanted to put the pieces together and you wish there, were, there was a little more. But the answer to what we would actually see is actually probably a little surprising. I, I don't think it really meets our natural expectations as what we, how the scripture portrays Jesus' boyhood. We have one episode, really, and it's this one we see today. Verses 41 through 52 in Luke chapter 2. If you want to turn there with me, that's the passage we're going to be looking at. Basic outline. And it starts with a normal routine. A normal routine. We see that here in the first few words. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year for, at the feast of the Passover. Normal situation. Pretty ordinary. Not unusual. And the males, according to the Old Testament, were required... To be in Jerusalem for three, three times a year for three feasts, three festivals, Passover being one of them, but due to Israel being kind of scattered, uh, the people of Israel scattered throughout the nation, not really near Jerusalem, it was required only now once a year, Passover being the time for a man and his family to go to Jerusalem. And this is why we see that Jesus' parents going to Jerusalem and they're doing it every year for the Feast of the Passover. And we know this. We've already seen in the book of Luke that these are faithful Jews. They are seeking to obey God's word, obey God's law, the way he laid it down, and how Jews are to live in accordance with the law of God. And they are. They're faithful. And that's why you see this here. A regular, ordinary routine. Jesus' family heading up to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Passover, the feast of the time when God delivered Israel from the clutches of Egypt. He passed over Israel because they had the blood of the lamb protecting them. Egypt did not. God displaying his great power for his people. Now, centuries later, Israel continuing to celebrate God's great work in the feast of the Passover or the feast of unleavened bread. You might see that it called that throughout the, the gospels. That's because the feast of unleavened bread would have come just a few days later. So oftentimes they're named together. But that's what we see here, an ordinary, normal routine. Luke tells us that Jesus was 12 years old, verse 42, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. Now the question is, is this Jesus' first time? Or had he gone up 12 times or 8 times or 9 times prior to this? And guess what? We don't know. We don't know how many times Jesus had been up to, this, uh, up to Jerusalem for Passover up to this point. The Mishnah, the traditional writings of the Jews, would have required that once a child, uh, a male child turned 13, that he'd be called the son of the commandment. And he'd be required at that point to now carry out his own obedience to going to Jerusalem in these, for these festivals. But the, the, the Mishnah would say that the child, the male child, about maybe age 11, 12, you'd start having him come up to experience it alongside you as his parents so that he would get the routine down. And so it could be that 
that's what's happening here. This is his first time, or it could be multiple times that Jesus has gone up to Jerusalem. We're not told, and we don't know. In fact, here's the reality. We really don't know much about Jesus' upbringing at all. That's the reality. We know that he was, this is what the Gospels tell us, conceived by a virgin, by the Holy Spirit, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, the son of a carpenter. What else do we know? <laughs> that's it. That's, just, that's it. That's what the, the New Testament Gospels give us. We don't know anything about Jesus' upbringing except for this episode. We do. We can piece some things together. He would probably be starting to learn his dad's craft at this point. He would have grown up with some relatives, siblings. But other than that, we just don't know anything about Jesus' upbringing. And we're going to ask the question why that's the case in a little bit. But right now, we just need to point out that we are given here our only glimpse into Jesus' growing up years. Age 12. Going up to Jerusalem for Passover with his parents as according to their tradition, their custom, obeying the law, obeying what God had instructed them to do, at least as they're able to do. As I said before, they're to do it three times for three festivals. They're doing it for Passover. Now, what happens though? Jesus, is, he's 12 years old. They're going up according to custom. In verse 43, it skips right to the end. It says, when the feast was ended... As they were returning, the boy stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now, how could this have happened? You're, you're kind of thinking, wait a second. As a parent, I keep pretty tight reins on kids. I know where they are. Um, and so you're thinking, how did this happen? Well, in Jesus' time, families and groups of people traveled together because it was dangerous not to do so. You, the parable of the Good Samaritan was a story that could have very easily happened. Someone getting robbed on the highway on a, on a path from one town to the next because bandits and robbers would hide out and they would hide behind rock and, crop, uh, and uh, outcroppings and they would uh, rob people and, and steal from them and beat them and so on. So it was dangerous to travel alone. So you would travel in groups. It would just fend off the, uh, the bad dudes, the bad guys. And it would have also made sense that if you are, if it's, time for the Passover that this little town of Nazareth, a lot of people are going to travel together to Jerusalem together. It just makes sense. So you have, as the text tells us, um, a little later on, he had their relatives and acquaintances with them. So this is people that they knew. And he's a 12-year-old boy. He's on the precipice of young adulthood. And you think that he's just up with uh, the rest of the relatives and acquaintances, people you know, people you trust, and Jesus is up with them traveling back to Nazareth. Not an unusual situation. Frankly, Mary and Joseph are not being neglectful at this point. This is, this is not unusual. This is fine that they would have, have done this and allowed him to do so. It's total, totally normal. But something is wrong. When the feast had ended, they were returning they were, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem and his parents did not know it. They think he is ahead with relatives and acquaintances. He's fine. In fact, he has stayed back in Jerusalem as they are now traveling back to Nazareth. Supposing him to be in the group, this verse, verse 44, supposing him to be in the group that they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. So here's the situation. They head out, they don't have Jesus, no big deal. He's ahead of us about a day. 
Okay, he's with the other group, the other wave of travelers heading back to Nazareth. No big deal. So they kind of catch up and they realize Jesus is not with these folks. Uh-oh. So by God's grace and providence, they immediately think we should go back to Jerusalem. So they do, and they turn around. And so the three days, as you see here, um, it says in verse 45, they did not find him. They reach, so they, they go out, they go for a day, they're thinking they're going to see Jesus among the relatives and acquaintances. They don't see him. They get a panic in the pit of their stomach, I can only imagine. Uh, after three days, they find him in the temple. And so this three days probably wasn't three days in Jerusalem. That's what a number of commentators believe. Because Jerusalem wasn't so large that you would have, you would, it'd take three days to search it out. Probably the three days is a day out, day back, one day in Jerusalem. Whatever the case, it's three days until they, they find him, and they find him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. So we have a normal routine, we have a troubling situation, and now if you guys are following the, the outline, we have the, an example of wisdom. So parents are concerned. They go back and look for their son. This is quite the story. We only have one story about Jesus and his child, and is Jesus getting lost? I mean, what, boy, how is this starting out? Well, actually, this is exactly where Jesus was supposed to be, as we, as we learn. They find him in the temple, and listen to this, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions listening to them and asking them questions. What do they find? (laughs) They find their son sitting among the teachers of the day, the teachers and leaders in Israel, in the temple, talking about spiritual things, talking about biblical things, talking about theological things. And what's so remarkable about this situation is you have the Son of God, whom Colossians says is the source of all wisdom, sitting among the teachers of his day, asking questions and listening. See, Jesus was the true wise man, wasn't he? He, he wouldn't get caught offering his opinion without having understanding, as the Proverbs 18.2 warns us not to do. He wouldn't be the one who gets caught up in saying something without knowing what he's talking about, like Proverbs 18.13 warns us against. Jesus as a man is here, as a young man is here, listening and taking in knowledge, asking questions, and due to his patient, humble listening, he is amazing them with his understanding and his answers. Jesus, the man, the young man here, demonstrating what genuine wisdom looks like in human form. It is asking questions, and listening. However, he's not just asking questions and listening, is he? What does the text tell us? Listening to them, asking them questions. And verse 47 says, And they heard him, they were amazed at his understanding, and what? And his answers. So he's not just sitting there taking it all in, though he is doing that, and he's able to listen carefully and discern what's but he's also contributing to the conversation and it's blowing the minds of the 
teachers. Where, who is this young boy who has such wisdom and insight into these biblical things? And you can only, again, we, just, we so badly want to speculate at this point. What is he talking about? Is he talking about Passover and what it means? Just, it, it just happened. The celebration had just happened. I don't know. It's fun to think about. However, what I want us to notice, and I'm going to kind of weave this theme throughout today's message. What I want us to notice is how the scriptures portray Jesus in his young humanity in contrast to the way pseudo-gospels portray him. So just an example, the infancy gospel of Thomas, written in about 80 AD. Maybe some of you have heard of it. Maybe as you've been talking to people, they bring up these kinds of things. Well, what about the infancy gospel of Thomas? Why isn't that in your Bible? And um, you'll find out in a moment why it's not in the Bible. But um, but it is. It's. It's. Uh, it was written in 80 A.D. And here in this portion, it's going to give this account. It's kind of borrowing from Luke's account, but it's going to add a little sensational detail. I want you to listen. Quote. And when they had gone a day's journey, they sought him among their kinsfolk. And when they found him not, they were troubled and returned to the city seeking him. And after the third day, they went and found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors and hearing and asking them questions. Here's the little sensational detail. And all men paid heed to him and marveled at that a young child he put to silence the elders and the teachers of the people, expounding the heads of the law and the parables of the prophets. Wow. Okay. Thank you for filling in the gaps, Infancy Gospel of Thomas, because we, were, we, we needed to hear this, this aspect of Jesus that we were expecting. No, that's not the case at all. What we have here is the filling in of the gaps in a very illegitimate way. The scriptures do not portray Jesus as a young man this way. They are far more understated than that. Jesus is here. He's contributing. They are amazed at his wisdom and at his answers but he is not bombastic, he is not pompous, he is not an arrogant know-it-all. Luke's account is far more reserved than what these pseudo-gospels can produce. See, you can almost feel the tension. You're thinking, but he's God, but he's God, but he's God. And you want to fill in the gaps with some more authority. He should be putting these guys to sleep. He should be tapping them out, spiritually speaking. But he's not. He is asking questions and he's contributing. They're amazed at his answers. But Luke's account is far more reserved than these pseudo-gospels. Now, that's not the only thing that we hear from these pseudo-gospels. Another one called the Arabic Infancy Gospel, written in 500 AD, said that Jesus was instructing the teachers in astronomy and um, uh, philosophy and science while he's in the temple. I mean, wow, that's pretty exciting stuff. Luke is far more reserved and understated, doesn't say anything about that. What about pseudo-Matthew in the 8th and 9th century? This is, this is what they said. I just, this is, you you got to hear this stuff. Um, so pseudo-Matthew was written in the 8th and 9th century, and this has to do now with, with Jesus as a young man um, learning and growing and needing to go to school, Okay. So how would you imagine Jesus needing to go to school? What would that look like if God in flesh came to earth and needed to go to school? What would that look like? Well, this is how it, it, this is how it sounds when you make it up. Again, the Jews asked Mary and Joseph a third time to coax him to go to another master to learn. And Joseph and Mary, fearing the people and the princes and the threats of the priests, led him again to school. 
knowing that he could learn nothing from man because he had perfect knowledge from God only. Now, you might be thinking, oh, um, yeah, because he's God, right? No, that's heresy. That's heresy. As a young man, Jesus needed to learn, and that's what Luke is emphasizing. He was truly a man. He was truly a young man. And as young men need to learn and grow in their knowledge, so did Jesus. That is one of the reasons we're given this account of Jesus as a 12-year-old. The scriptures do not portray Christ in the way that these pseudo-gospels do. The scriptures affirm Jesus' true and full humanity, which means he would have grown in knowledge just like other, any other human child. That's why we have to be beholden. We have to yield to. We have to be loyal to the scriptures and yield to its description of Jesus. See, our desire on the one hand to protect the deity of Jesus makes, makes us, like in the case here, drift over to saying too much or too little about his humanity. See, the path of orthodoxy, the path of truth, is a pretty narrow ridgeline for you hikers out there. And you can fall off into heresy very quickly and very easily. But the scriptures, there's a subtlety and a perfect balance in the scriptures. We want to yield to what it says about Jesus. He, in his humanity, needed to learn. And so he did. If we begin to lean on our own understanding, again, like these pseudo-gospels, when we begin to lean on our own understanding about who Jesus is, we quickly fall into heresy. Just think of this. The author of these false, false gospels, or the authors, couldn't imagine, they couldn't fathom that the Son of God had to learn things from others. And yet, here we have Luke, the inspired text telling us that is in fact what was going on. In fact, it's made even more clear in verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and man. Just like a um, human, any other human child his age. There's a beauty, of, as I said already, there's a beauty and a subtlety and a balance in the scripture that cannot be replicated by man. And that's an important apologetic point that we'll talk about in a moment. But that's what we find here. We see an example of wisdom. Jesus, the true wise man that the Proverbs prepare us for. Well, <laughs> for all the excitement in the air about who this Jesus was, it doesn't help his parents' concern. That's verse 48. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. Why were they astonished? Were they so excited that he was here among the teachers, contributing to the conversation? Uh, not so much. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now that word distress is a strong word. This is pit of the stomach, fear, and panic. They were in great distress. And as a parent, I know exactly what they're talking about. Two Saturdays ago, we're out to eat, and I'm in, with Easton in the bathroom. He had just gone to the potty, and can I say potty in a sermon? Well, I did. Um, 
and he had just gone to the bathroom, and so I was washing him up, and I turned around for a moment and to do something, maybe grab a napkin, I don't know what it was, and poof, there he went. He's out the door because someone had walked in. I don't even know how it happened. But all of a sudden, and we're in a pretty large restaurant, and it's a restaurant that's connected to the mall, which is just, right? So you, you, the first, I step out, and the first thing I'm thinking, well, he's off into the mall. He's down at Macy's. Who knows where he's at? And I'm looking around in a panic, and, 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 and it was a genuine panic because you don't know what's going to happen to your child. You don't know where he is. Well, he had just weaved his way back to mommy and uh, the other, his other two siblings, and everything was fine. But for that 30 seconds, I was genuinely panicked, so I know exactly what Mary and Joseph are going through. And you don't even need to, a parent, to be a parent to kind of to feel this. Perhaps you've had siblings or cousins who have gotten lost. Maybe you've been with their parents before and you're looking for the child and you don't know where he is or you just read the news and you know after three days and a child's been missing, the news is usually not very good. So you don't even need to have to be a parent to feel the weight of this story. They would have been in great distress And usually parents, when a child does do that, we will give a word of correction. Like, I was so scared, don't ever do that again, right? Similar kind of thing here. Why have you treated us like this? Why would you you stay back? We've been looking for you. This is distressing to us. We love you. You're our child. What, What were you thinking? What are you doing? So they're in a panic and in distress and... Jesus replies here in a way that some have seen as a rebuke. I don't see it as a rebuke at all. He, he says, it's a question. He's, he, listen to what he says. He said to them, why are you looking for me? Or why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? I, I don't see that as a rebuke as much as it's a question of something that was obvious to Jesus by now that should have been obvious to them. It's just, um, this, why didn't you know that I was here? I, this is where I need to be. This is, I, didn't you know I'd be, I'd be in my father's house? It, the text could also be translated about my father's business. I think the context is more about the location, so that's why your ESV probably, uh, or your ESV has it translated uh, in my father's house. But nevertheless, the point is, is, did you not know I'd be doing this kind of thing? See, they should have known that Jesus would be moving towards his heavenly father. They should have known that he would be about his father's business and in his father's house. They should have known that he would have a thirst and a hunger for divine knowledge and wanting to learn the scripture. They should have known that because they had been visited by a heavenly messenger explaining to them exactly whom this child was 12 years ago. And you tend to forget things after 12 years, and things aren't as clear. And in fact, we read just a few pages and we learn that the disciples were exactly the same way. They're walking with the Son of God, scratching their heads, going, Who is this guy? Who, who is this guy who stops the waves from crashing against the boat? And who's who does miracles? And we, who is this? So we shouldn't be too hard on um, Mary and Joseph or the disciples because you and I were the exact same way before the Spirit enlightened our eyes and gave us insight. In fact, we see when Peter responds to Jesus' question, who did people say that I am? He responds and says, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus immediately says, well, you didn't come up with that. And you didn't ask your friend about it. It was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. So let's not look down upon Mary and Joseph for not getting this. And we got to remember that 12 years, that's a long time. 
That is a long time since they had been visited by Gabriel. So a remarkable response by Jesus. They're in great distress. He offers them a statement that doesn't really help them, at least at this point, because in verse 50, they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. That's not Jesus' fault. That's theirs, but nevertheless, not helpful to them, at least not yet. But says that Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. She's still taking it in. She's taking it in. She's mulling it over and likely explaining these things to, to others. And this is where Luke is getting his information. But let's continue here. Now we have, so we've seen a normal routine, a troubling situation, an example of wisdom, a remarkable response, and now an ordinary childhood. An or, hmm, about Jesus? Jesus? An ordinary childhood? Well, let's see what I'm talking about here. What's the next verse? Right after verse 50, it says, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. The language here means that he was from this point on continually always submissive to them. A very important point because, and I think Luke probably is including it for this reason, you might be tempted to draw what conclusion after this episode? Jesus was insubordinate? No, he wasn't. He was not sinful. He, he answered his parents in a non-sinful way. His act, actions were not sinful. And he goes back and he submits to his parents like any other Jewish boy would he expected to do. And the reason this is vital is because you might remember earlier in Jesus's, um, or I should say we, we learned this a little later at Jesus's baptism, that he says he has to get baptized because he's here to fulfill all righteousness, right? In our place, he's fulfilling all righteousness. Here, he is fulfilling the righteousness of being under his parents. That's what the law prescribed. That's what you must do as a young child is submit yourself to your parents. And that's what Jesus did. But that's all it tells us. Pretty normal, ordinary childhood. We're, we're just not told anything else. We're going to get back to that into a, in a moment. So just hold that thought, that ordinary childhood part. Hold that for a second. Look at verse 52. It said, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Let's answer two important theological questions before we go back and talk about this issue of this ordinary childhood. So first question. Okay. How did Jesus increase in wisdom? Does that ever trouble you when you read it? Like, mm-hmm. How did Jesus increase in wisdom? He's the God-man. Now remember, what we see in the pseudo-gospels is when we lean on our own understanding, we so quickly veer off into heresy, don't we? We have to yield to the scriptures. We are told that Jesus increased in wisdom. What is wisdom? It's the ability to make one's way through the world according to God's will, to understand the world and make your way through it. Wisdom has shown us uh, in many ways in the Proverbs, and the Proverbs simply tell us how to make our way through God's world. Jesus, like any other child, would be growing up and more and more gaining knowledge of God and who he is and how to make his way through the world. At no point ever going from sinner to not sinner, but simply growing in that ability to discern his way through the world. 
you know, theologians have wrestled with this issue. What, what is this like for the eternal Son of God who has an infinite divine nature co, uh, with a, unified with this divine nature? How does this work? Well, the, one of the solutions has been that the Son of God in his humbling did not set aside his divine nature. We have to be very firm at that point. He did not set aside his divine nature. He was fully God from the moment he was conceived till today. He has never stopped being God. But there is an aspect here where he is growing in wisdom. And so in his humbling himself to become a man, what he does is, is he, he, he chooses to not access the infinite knowledge of the divine nature during part of his incarnation. In fact, while he's a child, he's a baby, he's He's humbled himself to the point where he's putting himself in the full care of his, uh, his heavenly father and his, his mother and father and choosing not to have any access to the, um, the knowledge that the divine nature had so that he can express a genuine humanity, which is what he does, which is what Luke is, is seeking to emphasize. Even if that's hard for you to wrap your head around, the point is that Jesus is here increasing in wisdom and there's nothing sinful or deficient or wrong with that for the Son of God. He's increasing in his ability to discern God's will and make his way through God's world. As a human being, Jesus grew in knowledge of God and the wisdom required to make his way through the world. As a human, as a man, that's the distinction we always need to be making, as a man, as a man. The divine nature did not grow in wisdom. Jesus as a man did. And so Luke is emphasizing Jesus' humanity. That's all he's doing. Maybe a slightly tougher question is, how did Jesus grow in favor with God? Oh, boy. Well, all right. Let's, we got to answer these questions because you, if you're talking with people who, who know the scriptures at all, they, they might be asking you these questions. How, how, is, it, how is it that the eternal Son of God grew in favor with God. Did that mean he became more and more God or God liked him more and more as time went on? What does it mean? Well, I, I certainly, we, we certainly can't say that it's God liked him more and more or that he became more and more like God as time went on. What does it mean? I think the best way to understand this is to say that Jesus grew in favor with God in terms of its manifestation. Let me explain what I mean. It, would, it was apparent that God's grace was upon Jesus, and the appearance and exercise of this grace grew as Jesus grew older. The more he developed, the more he exhibited that God was with him because he had a growing capacity through which God could display his favor. For example, as he transitioned from a young child to a young man, the ability to converse and to reason would naturally increase. Thus, God's favor upon his speech and his reasoning abilities would become clearer and clearer as he grew in these abilities. That's why you see him at age 12 and not at age 3 in the temple conversing with the leaders. Because he needed to grow in these, uh, these abilities to communicate. And, and as he did, God's favor was more and more displayed in its manifestation. And his favor would grow with man because as he matured, the people around him would recognize his character and his, and his love and his compassion and his 
who he was and the way he treated others and the way he talked about truth and the way he was honest and they would have grown in their respect for him. So when you, when you break these things out, I, I, I just don't find them troubling at all. The point is, the emphasis that Luke is making is that Jesus was truly man. He was truly human. Because if he wasn't, he can't save man. But if he is, then he can. He can substitute for you and for me. Now let's, let's just ask this. Let's back up again. Talk about this ordinary childhood. What's, what's the point of Luke's passage here? You know, when you get to, when you get and study Paul in like Colossians or Romans, he just comes straight up and tells you the point, right? You just didactically, you're working through it and you, boom, I got it. In narratives, it's, it's a little more challenging to discern. You, you have to, to access the, the rest of the context of the book and ask questions like, why this episode and not another episode? Why this one and leave other things out? Well, let me offer this. What's the point of this passage? Why this episode? Again, we've already mentioned it. I think one of the main issues here is that Luke is portraying the genuineness of Jesus' humanity. It's no coincidence that the exact same expression Luke is taking from 1 Samuel 2.26. This is what 1 Samuel 2.26 says about Samuel. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow in both stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Like Samuel, Jesus was devoted to God's service. Like Samuel, Jesus was a man. But Jesus also had a unique relationship with God. Do you remember how he said, Don't, didn't, you, didn't you know that I'd be here doing my what? My God's? business or in my God's house? No, in my father's house. Jesus talked about his heavenly father in a way that a Jewish young man or Jewish man would simply not talk about God. God's your what? He's my father. He has a unique relationship with God, but nevertheless, in light of this special relationship, he is growing in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man, and he is, goes back to Nazareth and remains submissive to his parents. And that's all we're told. That's it. In terms of Jesus' childhood, growing up till age 30, this is all we have. We have 30 years unaccounted for in, in Jesus' growing up. You want to know why? You want to know why that's the case? Uh, this is my best effort. The reason we know very little about Jesus' child is because it was pretty ordinary. Pretty ordinary. It was nor- a normal childhood, and he would have done normal childhood things for that day and age. If, just, have you ever thought about what it would be like if you went back in time to Nazareth? Let's say if you could, just, if you could go back in time to Nazareth, 2,000 some years ago and just be dropped right in Nazareth and a group of young boys, 12-year-old boys walk by, would you be able to pick out Jesus? He didn't have a halo. He didn't have a warm, iridescent glow about him. How would you have gotten to know him? How would you have been able to pick him out? What, what, what would that have been like? Would it have been like these pseudo-gospels? Would he have done, uh, would he have been able to shoot up in the space like a rocket and come back down? What would it have been like? One of the, I think one of the reasons we don't have much is because it was pretty ordinary, pretty normal. But see, our natural hearts want something more extraordinary and more sensational. 
The pseudo-gospels talk about Jesus' childhood with great embellishment, but the reality is it was probably pretty normal, as it says here. He just went back to Nazareth and was submissive to his parents. Let's go back to this uh, pseudo-gospel, Matthew, 8th and 9th century. See, our natural hearts crave for something more. We just, uh, got, I want to know. I, there, there had to be something going on there that was uh, uh, amazing. And well, that's when, when we start pining for that, this is what we come up with. Now this, I'm a little longer excerpt here, but this is from Pseudo-Matthew, again written in the 8th and 9th century, trying to fill in the gaps that we don't have. Talking about a little episode when Jesus was a young child, Quote, and having come upon a certain cave and wishing to rest in it, the blessed Mary dismounted from her beast and sat down with the child Jesus in her bosom. And there were with Joseph three boys and Mary a girl going on the journey along with them. And lo, suddenly there came forth the cave, from the cave many dragons. And when the ch- children saw them, they cried out in great terror. Then Jesus went down from the bosom of his mother and stood at the feet up before the dragons. And they adored Jesus and thereafter retired. And the young child Jesus, walking before them, commanded them to hurt no man. But Mary and Joseph were very much afraid, lest the child should be hurt by the dragons. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid, and do not consider me to be a little child, for I am and always have been perfect. And all the beasts of the forest must needs be tamed before me. Lions and panthers adored him likewise, and bowing their heads and showing their submission by wagging their tails, they adored him with great reverence. I'm not making this up, Okay. Now at first, when Mary saw the lions and panthers and various kinds of wild beasts coming, out, coming about them, she was very much afraid. But the infant Jesus looked into her face with joyful countenance and, and said, Be not afraid, mother, for they come not to do thee harm, but, make, but they make haste to serve both thee and me. Wow. Now that is extraordinary. But see, the point is, is that's what our natural hearts come up with. When we start imagining what it would be for, this, for the, the God of the universe to come to earth, what would that look like? What would that be? How would the, the Son of God live and, and act in, in when he was a child? What would that look like? One of the ways we know the Gospels are true is because the natural man is unable to depict the incarnation like the Gospels. There is a beauty and a balance and a subtlety here that cannot be replicated by man. Luke is restrained, he is understated, and we are simply not given information about Jesus' childhood. It was not sensational, it was pretty ordinary. See, That's one of the reasons why the gospel is foolishness to the unbeliever. When God really comes to earth, he comes quietly, he comes hidden. His entourage is a group of grubby shepherds. His throne is an animal trough and his childhood is normal and his life ends on a cross. See, when we think of God coming to earth, we think of a Superman. We think of magical spells. We think of dragons bowing down. We think of, if we, had, we could have read in other pseudo-gospels that talk about Jesus getting annoyed as a young child and killing the person to, who annoyed him. That's what we think of. Making pigeons out of clay and releasing them into the heavens. That's what we think of. Not the scriptures. 
this, this is exactly why the gospel is foolishness to the unbeliever. It doesn't have the elements in it that appeal to the natural mind. The natural mind wants a sensational Jesus. The scriptures give us the true Jesus, and this is who he is. Let us yield to him here. True faith is a gift from God. True faith is the God-given ability to see and embrace the true identity of Jesus as it is revealed in scripture. True faith doesn't rest upon the sensational. And there's a lot of people today looking for a sensational Christ, a sensational Christianity, and they're missing who he really is in scripture. True faith rests upon the spirit of God and the word of God. A word, listen, that by its unassuming humility and spiritual beauty demonstrates to the heart that it is true. The pseudo-gospels, the false gospels, must break out and say things that persuade, try to persuade the the natural mind because this just sounds kind of, I don't know, boring unless you have eyes to see. And then Jesus is the most precious and beautiful person you have ever encountered. But this is the way God has always worked, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, you think about the creator of the universe. Who did he reveal himself to? Noah, and a guy named Abraham, Abram at the time, a moon worshiper. Then he uh, saves a little uh, a nation, a small nation from the uh, nation of Egypt, and then he establishes people on this tiny sliver of land in the Middle East. He sends a son to this nation in a small, quiet, the small nation in a quiet, hidden fashion. And then this Savior, throughout his ministry, doesn't speak, seek the spotlight of sensationalism or self-promotion, even though that's exactly how Satan tempted him. Remember that? Throw yourself off, the, throw yourself off this pinnacle and, and get something crazy to happen because then when that happens, everyone's going to believe in you. For about 30 seconds, they'll believe in you. That's not how faith is grown. This Savior, he doesn't seek the spotlight of sensationalism or self-promotion. In many cases, he even sought to silence those who wanted to spread the news of his miracles and his messianic identity. Why? Why would Jesus do that? So that people's faith in him would rest upon the right things, not on the sensational, but upon Jesus himself and the promise of salvation and sin and God's judgment. We are to, Christ calls us to rest our faith upon him and his promise of salvation from sin and God's judgment. A lot of people looking for the sensational today. Jesus comes. He doesn't offer you earthly riches. He doesn't offer you earthly health. Doesn't offer you great prominence and prestige. This humble Savior comes and offers you one thing. God himself through the forgiveness of sins. So why did Luke give us this episode of Jesus' childhood? Why? To demonstrate that Jesus is, though the unique son of God, truly human. At the time of Luke's writing, there would have been already heresies swirling around, trying to say that Jesus' humanity was but an illusion or a shell. Luke is here to set the record straight. He wants us to know that Jesus' childhood was pretty normal. 
the young God man, Jesus Christ, would make his way through a relatively normal childhood until he was 30 years old. Then, after a mere three-year ministry, he would die a criminal's death upon a Roman cross outside an occupied city in the Middle East. But this man would bear the wrath of God in the place of his people on the cross and satisfy the justice of God so that God could be the just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. A normal childhood, a brief ministry, and a criminal's death is, as it turns out, the most significant human life in human history. And your eternity hangs on whether or not you see the infinite worth of the carpenter's son. Don't be drawn away by the sensational. Behold the beauty and truth of Jesus in the scripture. Believe in him, repent from your sins, and be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for giving it to us. We thank you that in your perfect wisdom, you give us everything that we need to know about Jesus. It's not necessary for us to know details about his childhood. It probably was a pretty normal childhood growing up in submission to his parents in Nazareth until his time came to embark on a short ministry to give himself in a death that looked totally meaningless and foolish to the world. But for those whom you've given eyes to see, we see it as the most significant and most important event in the history of mankind. And our eternity hangs upon whether we see power in it or not. God, I pray that everyone here today would see power in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Savior who is truly God, but also truly human. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.